Today on Not Sam Wrestling, Andrew Goldstein, the showrunner to Dark Side of the Ring Confidential, is going to be on to talk about all the documentaries that they've done. We're going to talk about who's going into the WWE Hall of Fame, and at this point, who might not be going into the WWE Hall of Fame. An amazing women's match over the last week. And can we break down everything that just happened at Fastlane? This is Not Sam Wrestling. This is Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. It's days like today that make it a pleasure to host a wrestling podcast. There are many, many Mondays when I come to you and I have to I have to find the energy. I'm sitting around, I'm on the couch, I'm watching, sometimes I'll be watching old wrestling, sometimes I'll just have to like get a ton of cold brew in my system, whatever I need to do to get myself all jazzed up about wrestling because there are some moments where you're looking at at what's going on on any given day, and you're just like, I can't sit here and for the next hour talk about my wrestling fandom. And then you go, well, let me watch this episode of WWE Superstars from 1993 and drink a a large Dunkin' Donuts coffee. And okay, yep, no, we're good. We're good. But tonight, today, this afternoon, whenever you're listening to this, it's not necessary. Because here's something that I feel like the WWE likes to do. And I don't know if they like to do it just because it's they don't even know they're doing it. Maybe it's 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 something like inherent in them. You know, it's one of those sort of uh, like uh, like you ever meet somebody who's like self sabotaging. Not that the WWE is self sabotaging, but somebody that is it's it, self destructive, hell bent on making everything bad. And you're like, you could stop this all yourself, but there's just something their depression or 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 a sense of loss of control exercises itself by ruining their own life for no reason in particular. And you know why they're doing it, but they don't know why they're doing it. So maybe maybe WWE does this every year without even knowing that they're doing it every year just because it's one of those psychological ticks, or maybe it's just something that they do for fun. But it feels like, and, and I, I felt it going into Fastlane. I felt it for the first half of the Fastlane pay-per-view where the WWE, right before we get to WrestleMania, they start they start nosediving. They start nosediving down. And you're sitting there, and you're a passenger on the plane, and you got your head between your knees, and you're putting your oxygen mask on first, even though your kid is like, I know they said in the video to put yours on first, but I'm your kid. And you're like, shut up. I got to put my oxygen on. We're going down. I don't know what this pilot is doing. Me, me, me. The thing's going off. The flight attendants are panicking. That's when you know you're in trouble. The flight attendants are panicking. And then all of a sudden, something happens, and they just decide to pull back and level out the plane. Oh, I'm sorry if that scared you folks. No, we're uh, going to be arriving at WrestleMania as we anticipated. And the rest of the ride is just a smooth, enjoyable flight. Everybody gets a free cocktail because of how bumpy everything went. And by the time you land, you're thinking to yourself, man, I got to use that airline again. You don't even remember. And then a year goes by and the nosedive starts again. And you're like, I am never again, never again. And then they straighten out and they pull that nose back up. And you go, huh, 
I got to use these guys again. That's what WWE does before WrestleMania. And it's kind of, I don't know. I mean, speaking of self-sabotaging, maybe there's just something in me as a wrestling fan. Maybe it's in you too. That you're like, I, I have to experience it. I have to experience it. When wrestling is good, we get so much joy that we have to we have to experience the bad. Even when we assume the good isn't coming. There's something in us as the hardcores that go, yeah, but I enjoyed the good part of it, so I'm going to have to sit here for the bad. Because the fast lane pay-per-view ends at a cool two hours and 45 minutes, by the way, just mwah, perfection, great length for a pay-per-view. Fast lane ends, and I'm sitting there going, oh my God, I love professional wrestling so much. On Patreon, for some of the upper echelon, the one percenters, the one percenters and the three percenters as well, on the Not Sam Wrestling Patreon page, uh, before every pay-per-view that I'm home for, we open up a Zoom room and we all sit around and chat in the Zoom room for about an hour before the pay-per-view. And this question came up. The question also came up in our Patreon Discord room and it was addressed on the Patreon-exclusive Thursday, Not Sam Thursday podcast that we do every week. This is not to plug the Patreon over and over again. This is to say that this is a conversation that started, for me anyway, on Thursday. The question of going into SmackDown. What is going to happen with Edge? And I said, and I said it on the Wade Keller podcast last week too. We taped the podcast. I think the podcast came out on Thursday. So we taped it before SmackDown. And I think we both kind of agreed, and I know that I said, oddly enough, I see Jey Uso winning the match on SmackDown because I don't see how we get out of Edge as the special enforcer referee without a triple threat coming from that. And I said to myself, there's no way. There's no way that the WWE is going to give us that bone. There's no way that we're going to get another Daniel Bryan WrestleMania main event. I said, I mean, Edge would save face if he called the match down the middle and Daniel Bryan won the title. But they're not going to do the main event without Roman Reigns. And then I said, or Roman Reigns could walk out with the title, but I don't see Roman Reigns walking out with the title without Edge, even if it was done in a way where where sympathy was built for Daniel Bryan, Edge would come across looking like a bad guy. Because there will never be a WrestleMania main event. As long as Daniel Bryan is an active competitor, the WWE fans don't want Daniel Bryan to be in. I mean, starting at WrestleMania 30... WrestleMania 30 changed wrestling. Daniel Bryan being in that main event and getting that moment, it changed wrestling. WrestleMania 30 is one of the most important WrestleMania moments. The end of that show is one of the most important WrestleMania moments of all time. When I think about WrestleMania 31, I think about two things. Of course, I think about the Seth Rollins cash-in. But when I think about what was my favorite match on that show, it was Daniel Bryan winning the Intercontinental Championship in the ladder match to open WrestleMania 31. When you go back to WrestleMania 
The one in Florida. It was not 24, but maybe 28. I don't know what it was. When uh, I think it was maybe 27. No, it was 28. It was 28. Because Seamus and Brian opened that show. And Brian losing in thir- five seconds to a single brogue kick and losing the title, even as Brian was a heel, it changed Daniel Bryan forever. Because that's when fans decided that Daniel Bryan was not in the WWE to put people over. Daniel Bryan was in the WWE to change the WWE. The same way Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels changed the perception of what superstars in the WWE could do in 1992 and 1993. It started before that, 1991. 1990, when you're looking at the Hart Foundation and demolitionists. Daniel Bryan was put in the WWE to do that again. And that attitude with the fans started right then at WrestleMania. I want to say 28. Don't crucify me if I'm wrong. And it culminated at WrestleMania 30. He was not supposed to be in that main event. We all know the story. I told it very, very well on the Not Sam Wrestling WWE Network show. But I said, even if Edge were, like if Roman Reigns were to do something cheap and Edge were to save Daniel Bryan from getting a beatdown and kind of like been there to protect Bryan, but Roman still wins, fans would not be sitting there going like, all right, even if Daniel Bryan, Daniel Bryan would have been like The Rock raising Roman Reigns' hand at that Royal Rumble. Daniel Bryan would be like, guys, Edge is my dude. He's going to go to WrestleMania and face Roman Reigns. And then Edge and Roman Reigns would be sitting face-to-face in the middle of Raymond James Stadium for the first time, 25,000 members of the WWE Universe look onwards, and they're all chanting, we want Brian. We want Brian. There was no way out. And I was confused by that. So I said, I would think Jey Uso is going to win because there's a million things you could do if Jey Uso is the, is, is the enforcer. And then they said, uh, they one of the guys in the Discord, he goes, well, you know, Edge is one of the greatest heels of all time. And I go, there's no doubt about that. Rated R superstar Edge, I mean, it's on another level. He said he wanted to be the Roddy Piper to John Cena's Hulk Hogan, and I believe that he was. Edge is a, a masterful heel. But me and my naivete, I go but I don't think Edge came back to be a heel. Or maybe even if Edge did come back, I don't think WWE brought Edge back so that Edge could be a heel. Because that's the only way it works if it's a, even a triple threat. Now it becomes, you know, Edge doing something to cost Brian the match. I said, it's just not going to work. And I watched the match. I watched Daniel Bryan versus Roman Reigns at Fastlane. And first of all, the match itself, it's just operating on a completely other level. The psychology in the match, the story in the match. And it's not just those moments of like submissions on and the facial expression tells the whole story. It's the entire pace of the entire match start to finish. I mean, I could have watched 
Daniel Bryan trying to lure Roman Reigns into a grappling match for 30 minutes straight. I could have watched it all night long. It was just so good. Daniel Bryan's awareness of limbs. I wish Daniel had done that thing where he got on the ground, you know, where he got his back on the ground and was fighting from his back to the untrained eye going like, well, that's dumb. He's already laying down, not realizing that Brian, because he's giving up power and he's giving up height and he's giving up reach, is actually going to be able to control the situation from down there. You know, I, I, just, I, I thought it was so great. And then Roman, when he finally was able to get the upper hand on Brian, when he finally was able to get Brian to stop, you know, turning and twisting and, and, and you know, the way Brian would like jog instead of walk, showing off the conditioning that a grappler really has. And then when Roman Reigns, in the act two of the match, when he finally gets control and he just starts power moves, just unleashing, just thrusting and punching and hitting and kicking and throwing, turning an arm bar into a power bomb, doing everything that he can to use his advantage, the same way Brian has this unbelievable skill set. And the way Brian, like, and I'm so glad that Michael Cole brought it up on commentary in the beginning of the match. I thought it was awesome on Friday when Daniel Bryan says that Roman's never tapped out because Roman has not spent any considerable amount of time on the mat with elite mat grapplers. Because anybody that spent that kind of time with elite mat grapplers taps out. All of them do. Nobody who fights real competition doesn't tap. And it's like, You've now turned that story into something completely different. And you've illustrated the fact that that Roman Reigns admitting that he's never tapped out now tells you that he lacks in experience what Daniel Bryan has. Now tells you that a perceived weakness, this is like David versus Goliath. The story of David versus Goliath was not that David, who had all these disadvantages, somehow found a way to beat Goliath because it was just, oh, I'm going to keep fighting and I'm going to keep fighting and I'm going to keep fighting. The real story of David versus Goliath is the fact that all of the advantages that David had over Goliath were overlooked. That many of the perceived weaknesses that David had were actually strengths if he was able to use them in a certain way. That is the story of Daniel Bryan and Roman Reigns. That this perceived weakness, that Daniel Bryan has tapped out in matches before, that Daniel Bryan is smaller than Roman Reigns, that Daniel Bryan is less powerful than Roman Reigns. Like these, what about the strengths here? The fact that he hasn't tapped out is a, the fact that he has tapped out is a strength because he has the, the, this genius level of IQ to a wrestling skill set that Roman simply doesn't have. And he admitted he didn't have it by admitting that he had never tapped out because he's never been in the situations that Daniel Bryan has been in. And what are you going to do, Roman Reigns, when I bring you into those situations? At the same time, like I said, Roman reversing the score and saying, well, you can't hang with me on a level of punching you in the face. When it comes to pure power, you're not going to be able to hang with me. And then the referee goes down, and I mean, you feel this tension. And so I'm sitting there right Going in, I'm a little worried. I'm a little worried because I'm worried that the WWE has not realized what I have realized as a fan and what many other fans have realized, that sitting at home, a lot of us 
have this feeling that we want to see Daniel Bryan in the main event of WrestleMania. We want Roman and Edge to become Roman versus Edge versus Daniel Bryan. And, you know, it's amazing. I heard many quote-unquote experts in the wrestling world saying how absolutely stupid it was for Daniel Bryan to be losing all these matches in January. And it's like, none of that matters. None of it. Nobody's thinking about any of it. Everybody wants him in the match. And when you were saying that, you had no idea what story was being told. Shocker. So I worried, though, that the WWE did not realize how strong this momentum was building because of the lack of a live audience. Because all WWE can do, and I, I think WWE must be doing a masterful job of monitoring feedback on the internet and feedback from fans. Because it seems like they are listening without even getting to audibly hear the voices of the fans. Or maybe some of these moments are just becoming... Maybe I'm giving too much credit to WWE. It's probably the other way around. I don't think that we're so well-trained as wrestling fan that it, fans that it's Pavlovian. I think that they're, in this case, reacting to a true thing. That they picked up on that. That we want Brian to be the third man in a triple threat at WrestleMania. Or maybe it was Roman Reigns that figured it out. Or maybe it was Edge that figured it out. And said, this is the story that we need to tell. Because somewhere along the line, and that's what, that's what concerned me, that the WWE would not be aware of this, that they would go ahead and book Roman Reigns versus Edge, and they would get to Tampa and have a really unpleasant realization that the fans were missing something in this main event match. I was wrong. I'm underestimated. I underestimated what was going on over there. I think. I think. Could be wrong still to the, right now. I think. Because I forgot one thing. Edge returned to the WWE. Not because he needed a paycheck. I mean, he lives up in the mountains. Like, he lives within his means. Not because... He wanted another shot at the glory. Edge returned to the WWE to tell great stories. And not every story has to be Edge is the man. And Edge knows that more than anybody. And I, that was evident tonight at Fastlane. I started to get, the, you started to get that feeling as you were watching this match going like, oh my God, like, are they actually going to do this? Because they give all this time to Roman and Brian and they make it such a back and forth and they make it clear so many times that Daniel Bryan could win this match tonight. Roman Reigns won the Universal Championship in August of 2020 at SummerSlam. We're halfway through March of 2021, a little more, three quarters of the way through March of 2021. And nobody has challenged Roman Reigns the way Daniel Bryan did at Fastlane. Nobody has come anywhere near as close as Daniel Bryan did at Fastlane. And that's where you start going, what are they doing here? 
What are we witnessing here? Are we actually going to see what I think we're going to see? And then the referee gets knocked out. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God. They're not. Are they really? I mean, what else could happen? Edge comes in the ring. He counts. One, two, kick out. I was like, is he going to count? Is it the one, two, three? But it's going to be controversial, but technically it's fair, but it, it goes to a kick out. Roman's like, hey, man, speed it up, Charlie. Edge is like, hey, you do you. I'll do me, okay? How about that? How about that, big guy? And when it finally goes down, when 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 Brian hits Edge with the chair by mistake, I go, whoa. That's cool. And then when Brian goes to hit Roman and he misses, I go, oh, so I guess this is the part where Brian loses because he did something out of character. Ah, he made a mistake. Shouldn't have swung that chair. He should have thrown the chair out when he looked at the referee and realized, but that's not what happened. That's not the basic story we were told. Then, when Brian puts the yes lock, the label lock, onto Roman Reigns, and you see it in his eyes, and you hear you hear Paul Heyman yelling. By the way, Roman is the best trash talker in the business right now. The realism of Roman Reigns when he is trash talking in the ring, he's the best at it. Roman Reigns is operating on a different level from everybody else. I mean, Daniel Bryan's there with him, Edge is there with him, but like, I mean, there was, it's like when it was Roman and Drew at Survivor Series. At Fastlane tonight, and there were good matches. There were good matches, there were not so good matches. Drew versus Sheamus was great. But there was everybody else on the pay-per-view. And then there was Roman Reigns versus Daniel Bryan. At Survivor Series, there was everybody else. And then there was Roman Reigns versus Drew McIntyre. I mean, there are a series of these matches. And the common denominator is Roman Reigns. The all-time level that he's operating on right now is a sight to behold. And when he's in that, that lock, when he's in that yes lock, that LaBelle lock, and his eyes are fading, and Paul Heyman is talking about, you know, your children. Think about your children. Head of the table stuff. Brian is going like, I'm going to break you. You're going to break. And you see those eyes fluttering. And that, I mean, oh, so poetic. Just that light tap. I mean, he wasn't tapping with his hand. He was tapping with his fingertips. Like he couldn't believe he was doing it. He was a defeated man. Tapping with his fingertips like there was nothing left. And when Edge comes down, that dastardly son of a bitch edge comes down with that steel chair on Daniel Bryan. I don't remember if it was Graves or Michael Cole. Probably Michael Cole. He's so much better at commentary than Corey Graves, but either Cole or Graves who said edge just ruined this entire match because he broke it up and you're like, Oh my God. And then he hits Roman and then he hits Brian again. And he hits them both, and he leaves. And then the other referee comes out, and Roman is able to get the cover then. I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, 
they did it. Edge is a villain. They turned Edge heel. And the only thing I could think of is that I underestimated how much, and, and this is, I have so much respect for Edge, but I underestimated, I think, the level to which Edge is there to tell stories. The level to which Edge is not there for ego. I got fabed, okay? I got worked. We all got worked. You know what happened? We all heard this promo right before the Royal Rumble from Edge. And he said he and he said he's never had this wrestling. He never thought this was gonna happen. He never thought this was gonna happen. He's gonna do it for his family. He's gonna do it for his mom. He's gonna do it for everybody. This wasn't supposed to happen, but he came back. And now he's gonna get to go to the Royal Rumble. And now he's gonna win the Royal Rumble and go to WrestleMania. And who would have thunk it? But gee golly gang, why don't you come on this journey with me? And I go. I'm with you, Adam. I'll come on this journey with you. And that was my mistake number one, because that wasn't Adam talking to me. That was Edge playing a character. We talk on this show about new kayfabe. People say kayfabe is dead. Kayfabe is not even somewhat dead. The true auteurs of this thing that we call professional wrestling know exactly what they're doing. New kayfabe is alive and well. And new kayfabe is after the rumble. Edge, in interviews, not in promos, in quote-unquote out-of-character interviews, saying things like, well, boy, you know, I don't know what ride we're on, but I'm trying not to overthink it, and I'm trying to just go on this ride. Boy, oh, gee, golly, Edge, that sure sounds great. Isn't it fun? I bought it line and sinker. Hey man, I don't know what's happening. Cause again, I thought that was Adam talking. I thought Adam didn't think that he was going to get to win the Royal rumble as this character edge and go to WrestleMania. But Hey, when the office tells you that you're going to go to WrestleMania, you go to WrestleMania, right? That's basically what he was saying in this interview, but that's not what he was saying in this interview because this is new kayfabe. He was taking all of us wrestling fans on this ride where there wasn't an ounce, not an ounce of heel in him. There was no ego. It was just, come on, gang. Can you believe this is even happening? And then he goes and, and, and he talks about how it's going to be really cool wrestling uh, Jey Uso because it's a generational thing. And, it's, and like you feel like you're like, yeah, you can't help but be enthusiastic for the amazing story of Adam Copeland of Edge, the, one of our favorites growing up, who's now done the impossible and he's back. And then it all blows up tonight. It all blows up at Fastlane. He takes all of that goodwill and he realizes, gotcha, gotcha, it worked. And now that heel turn just means so much more. And now... You're not going in there with some weird match where Roman is the head of the table, but Edge is one of the all-time greats, and who's going to win? It's Roman Reigns, who's got an ego the size of the moon because he feels 
He has held the company on his back. He has main evented more than anybody else who's on the roster right now. He's the man. He's Jordan. He's Michael Jordan. You have Edge now, who, forget about the moon, has an ego the size of a planet. He's the undertaker on Joe Rogan going like, yeah, you're the king of all these soft kids that are around here now, but I'm Edge. I'm a legend. I'm a Hall of Famer already. I'm lit. I'm not a future Hall of Famer. I'm a Hall of Famer already. And I'm about to be the Universal Champion at WrestleMania. You know why I'm main eventing WrestleMania? Because I'm bigger than all of you. Because I'm Edge. And then you have Daniel Bryan, who's going, guys, you know, I, I know you guys are arguing about who's better and generational and everything, but I, if you have, I should mention, I'm the best wrestler on the planet. So I, I don't know. And they're like, yeah, right. Who thinks that? Oh, all these people. And that's when 25,000 people go, yes, 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 yes. Now, it's not official. The match hasn't been signed. We haven't been said, hey, we've got a triple threat at WrestleMania now. We're going into WrestleMania 37. Triple threat, Edge, Roman, Bryan. But you would have to believe that it's inevitable at this point. I don't see any other way that this match is going. And quite frankly, we've got three episodes of SmackDown. Three episodes of SmackDown before WrestleMania. I don't know what story gets told over those three episodes of SmackDown. But there's a humdinger of a chance that Daniel Bryan is going to walk out with the WWE Championship again. Now, look, there's also a humdinger of a chance that Roman Reigns keeps the title or maybe Edge starts to, who is Edge? Who is this Edge? Is this Edge that's grateful, that can't believe he's getting this other opportunity? Is this Edge brooding Edge, who I think I know? Is this Edge reeking of awesomeness? Is this Edge a, a rated R superstar who has live sex celebrations? Is this the ultimate opportunist Edge? Or is this some weird, evil, egotistical amalgamation of all of those parts that is not ready to conceive of the fact that there could be people this generation that are not only better than him now, that were better than him then? I don't know yet, but that edge could walk out universal champion. All I know is there is a distinct possibility that regardless of who wins at WrestleMania, you can't go wrong. I will watch Roman Reigns versus Daniel Bryan matches for the rest of my life with great joy. I would still love to see a one-on-one -on -one confrontation with Edge and Roman Reigns. And quite frankly, if Edge leaves WrestleMania with the WWE Championship because of ultimate opportunist-type tactics, then before Roman Reigns gets another shot, we could be looking at pay-per-views headlined by Daniel Bryan versus Edge. Daniel Bryan versus Edge. Dude, what are we living through right now? Amazing ending to a pay-per-view. Amazing ending to Fastlane. And I can't wait 
to see where it's going to go. Uh, some other headlines coming out of Fastlane. Of course, uh, Drew and Sheamus just beat the ever-loving snot out of each other. Drew and Sheamus, they were up in the Thunderdome. They were on the second level. They had explosions that actually worked. It was an incredible sight to be seen. Unbelievable. I mean, Sheamus left with welts on top of welts. All the face paint was wiped clean off of Drew McIntyre's face. It was great. Just a great, great showing. And that's another match that I would watch forever. Drew versus Sheamus. It'll be interesting to see uh, what happens between Drew and Bobby over the next three weeks. Because I think a lot of work needs to be done to guarantee that Drew McIntyre does not get booed walking into WrestleMania. Not because he deserves to get booed. Because I don't think he does. But it's real easy to cheer for Bobby Lashley. So some work has to be done to make sure that that is not what happens. Um, I think the other bit, well, we'll get to, we'll get to Fiend in a second. Uh, I wanted Apollo Crews to win the Intercontinental Championship. It, that finish looked like a botch to me. First half of the pay-per-view was tough. I, 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 think, I think things turned, you know, I mean, Seth versus Nakamura was good. But, yeah, Apollo versus Big E was not what I wanted it to be. And I think it was because that finish, finish looked botched to me in a big way. Like, it was like, oh, Apollo didn't get his shoulders up in time or something like that. Just one of, you know, the weird way that, you know, the referee has to call it uh, as a shoot. Um, but, yeah, I, I thought it would have been a good move to just put the Intercontinental Championship on Apollo Cruz. You could have him cheat, but have him beat Big E have the the run-up to WrestleMania be all about Apollo. You know, I think Apollo could have really used the rub. And then have Big E beat him for the Intercontinental Championship, get it back at WrestleMania, and Big E could have a big thing. You know, Apollo would have a ridiculously grand entrance at WrestleMania with an entire Nigerian army and people dancing and people, you know, playing with fire and whatnot. Everything that they showed in that package, they could have created an amazing entrance and have all kinds of gold all over the place with the gold intercontinental championship around the waist of Apollo Crews. Then Big E comes in and he gets to have a grand celebration because he won the intercontinental championship back at WrestleMania. That's what I wanted to see, but alas, we shall not. Um, and man, I, I don't know what the issue is with Sasha Banks and Bianca Belair. I don't know why you take what on paper should be one of, if not the most compelling matches at WrestleMania and somehow write a story to make people roll their eyes at it. I mean, Sasha Banks versus Bianca Belair is the match everybody wanted to see. It's history. It's, ev it's, it's generational. It's everything. You don't need all the story. The story hasn't made any sense going in. Sasha Banks and, and Bianca Belair keep losing. You know, I, I don't know what, like, I don't know what they're doing, Sasha and Bianca, as characters, not as human beings, obviously. They're following instructions as human beings. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, that, talk about riding the plane. I think that the WWE needs to get on SmackDown and just stop all the nonsense. Sasha doesn't need to be smacking people in the face. I mean, if she does, she does, but there should be a better reason for it than Reginald. You know, there's, I, 
the conversation about that match before this whole storyline was it could main event one of the nights of WrestleMania. Even if it doesn't main event one of the nights at WrestleMania, you could still treat it as if it could. And there's no reason not to. I hope that on Friday on SmackDown, we see, we see, yeah, we see things get changed around so that it just becomes more about Sasha and Bianca and not, you know, all this nonsense with the tag teams and Reginald and, and rookie and awful, awful. Um, and the burned up fiend, you know, I think that for the most part, most people probably didn't like the Sasha and Bianca story. I think for the most part, people did like the Edge Brian Roman story. I think for the most part, people liked Drew versus Sheamus. But burnt up fiend is where the line gets drawn. Burnt up fiend is what's known as polarizing. You feel one way or the other about the whole Drew, uh, I mean, not Drew, uh, uh, Randy. Bray Wyatt, Alexa Bliss thing, you know? I mean, Randy's got to do something about that indigestion. He keeps coughing up motor oil every single time he shows up on TV. This time, I mean, you know it's bad when you've coughed up so much motor oil that you show up to your match coughing up motor oil and you're just like, all right, enough with the nonsense. It really is funny how much Randy Orton takes for granted with Alexa Bliss. Like, I feel like if somebody in my entrance made me cough up motor oil, then made a lighting rig fall from the ceiling and almost kill me, threw a fireball at me, and, like, you know, multiple times, I'd be sitting there going, like, what kind of witch are you that you know this magic? This is not human. What is going on here? But Randy was like, all right. Like, it's almost like Randy was almost, and this is not on Randy. This is just in the storytelling. It was almost like Randy's reactions were as if, ah, that's a pretty good submission move, you know. Ah, you can make lighting structures fall from the ceiling on top of me, huh? Ooh, touche. I should have done my homework on you. Like, what? How is this even? However, you know how I feel about The Fiend. I am a huge fan of the whole thing. I love horror movies. I told you from the beginning. I told you from the beginning. The Fiend is not a traditional heel. He is a horror movie monster. He is a slasher franchise horror movie monster. He is Jason Voorhees. He is Freddy Krueger. When you go, he is Leatherface. When you go to a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, when you go to a, a Friday the 13th movie, when you go to a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, Technically, yes. Freddy, Jason, Leatherface, Michael Myers on Halloween. Technically, those are the heels. Yes. But nobody really wants to see Laurie Strode win. Nobody really wants Jamie Lee Curtis to finally stop Michael Myers. You watch those movies because you like Michael Myers. Nobody really wants the campers to beat Jason Voorhees. In the moment, they want them to escape, but at the end of the movie, if Jason Voorhees just ate everybody, you'd be like, cool, Jason's the man. Because you're going to see Jason Voorhees. That's the draw. That's why when it comes to, like, Friday the 13th, there are 10 movies, 11, I'm sorry, there are 11 movies and a remake. There's only one character that remains in all 12 of those movies, 
And it's not a camper that everybody loved. It's not one of the baby faces, quote unquote. It's Jason Voorhees. So The Fiend is that character where ultimately he is not a traditional heel because he is a horror movie monster. He is the person when when there's a match with The Fiend, you are going to the match to see The Fiend. It's just how the character is designed. So when The Fiend got lit on fire, I always no doubt in my mind that this was just a reason to resurrect The Fiend and to make him come back stronger and looking more badass than ever. There was no doubt in my mind that The Fiend would look very different. Um... I felt like, you know, and you could say that it was Jason Voorhees asking, you know, Jason Voorhees has uh, survived electrocution underwater. He has come back as a zombie where he was literally buried and dead and they unburied him and then he came back alive because lightning struck him. Um, He was blown up and sent to hell, put back together. Like a, a lot of that stuff has happened. So you could say that there is Jason Voorhees influence still in The Fiend. And while that's true, I saw and I tweeted it out and a lot of people tended to agree with me. I saw for the first time in The Fiend a different franchise horror movie villain, Chucky from Child's Play. Now a lot of uh, Chucky doll, you know, the Chucky doll. People go, oh, so Chucky doll was a talking doll, right? No, 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 you ignorant fool. It was not just a talking doll. It was not an evil doll. See, here's the thing about Chucky was, uh, well, he was a serial killer. He was a serial killer that the police had finally tracked down. This serial killer was familiar in the ways of voodoo. So the police shot him down, and as he's dying, he realizes he's going to die. He gets a Chucky doll because he's in a toy store that's closed one night, and he gets a Chucky, a, a good guy's doll, and he transfers his soul into the doll. So the reason the doll is a killer is because the doll has a serial killer's soul that's been transferred into it. And now he can get away with it. And also, the serial killer would like to transfer his soul out of the doll into a human being. But, you know, we're getting into the weeds here, folks. But what I'm saying is that the Bray Wyatt body is merely a vessel for the fiend. If you watch the first Child's Play movie, they burn the Chucky doll. I tweeted, at not Sam, a photo of burnt Chucky coming back from the dead when they all thought he was dead to attack the people who were trying to kill him. And he looked very much like The Fiend. I believe there was quite a bit of inspiration from Chucky in this version of The Fiend. But I thought it was badass. I love this version of The Fiend. I wonder how it's going to play out in a wrestling match. You know, obviously, I would imagine we're going to get burnt up Fiend versus Randy Orton at WrestleMania. Um, But yeah, I mean, I thought, uh, and interestingly enough, you know, not 100%, but with the more green eyes, with the kind of uh, pale makeup on the face of Alexa Bliss, a little bit more doll-like. You could kind of see that Alexa was starting to maybe resemble Tiffany from the Child's Play series. Of course, the love interest of Chucky, also a doll. Um, You know, there's stuff to it. But look, you have to look at this Fiend character the way you look at horror movie monsters. Because that's what the Fiend always has been. And he's never claimed to be anything else. So, you know, I mean, you can't sit there and, and, and 
honestly, like you can, you can do whatever you want, but somebody who goes to me, you know, that match with the fiend just wasn't believable. That would never happen in real life. I'd go like this. Okay, cool, man. Go have a conversation with that guy across the room. Cause I don't, it, there's not one here for you. Huh? Yeah, no, no, no. We don't have anything to talk about, bud. Go talk to that guy across the room. You don't get it. Okay, this isn't Luthez. This is The Fiend. It's like a living, breathing Michael Myers in real life who wrestles wrestlers like Randy Orton. Why is this so difficult to comprehend? I'm glad that they went that far. I'm glad that they changed his presentation. It makes me bummed out. You know, there was a part of me that always wanted to take a picture with the fiend in full gimmick. And I've had the opportunity, but I would never ask him for a photo. <laughs> Just really seems unprofessional. Hey, Bray, before you change, you take a photo? <laughs> I mean, for what, Sam? No, I, I know. I don't know. No, nothing. Never mind. Pretend I didn't ask. But it would have been badass. But no, I mean, I, 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 I think there was probably still more that The Fiend could have done. The Fiend has taken some weird trips, man. And I think there's still more that The Fiend could have done before he evolved like this because it's going to be tough to go back. You could. You could. Voodoo curses and stuff like that. You could go back. But I like Burned Up Fiend, and I'm ready for Burned Up Fiend versus Randy Orton. Let's go on the ride, baby. Let's go on the ride. I'm here for it. Let's go. Let's go. As far as my experience with Peacock went, I did watch the pay-per-view on Peacock uh, for the first time because uh, even though, you know, I love the WWE Network, that's what I'm comfortable with, I wanted to be ready to use Peacock. TakeOver is going to be exclusively on Peacock, night two anyway. Night one's on USA. WrestleMania is going to be exclusively on Peacock, so it's like if we don't get used to Peacock now, we're going to be in trouble next month. Um, I had no problems with it whatsoever. Uh, the picture was very, very clear. I was really, really happy with it. Um, the only functionality, it does not, it's weird that it doesn't have this. It does not have pause, rewind, fast forward functionality. So like, it was interesting because they have a live channel feed, right? Like they have on Peacock, they have like all the shows that are available, all the NBC shows, WWE Network, all that stuff. And then they also have live channels that run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They're not live live, but so like, you know, there's an Unsolved Mysteries channel that plays nothing but Unsolved Mysteries episodes. There's an SNL channel. There's a Tonight Show channel. There's a Today Show channel. There's a couple of WWE channels. One of them was playing WrestleMania 35, 34. I think it was AJ versus Nakamura. So I think it was 34. One of them was playing WrestleMania 34. And the other was actually playing Watch Along. So if you went over to channels on Peacock, and you went to the WWE channel, the live WWE Network watch along with Matt Camp and the gang was on that channel on Peacock. But on the front page of the browse section of Peacock, there was just a thing that said live and it was fast lane. Uh, and you just clicked on it and it was basically a block of time that included the fast lane pre-show and the fast lane pay-per-view. But once you, once you clicked on it, there was no, it just started. Like if you clicked on it at eight, it would start at eight live. And there was no rewinding it the way there was on the WWE Network. For me, it didn't bother me because I, I didn't, I don't think I used that pause rewind functionality all that much. But I, I could definitely, 
see a lot of people getting bothered by that if they were using it. I mean, it's just, you know, anytime a service moves and there's functionality removed, that's never a, that's never a good thing. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that they, they get all the content over there quickly. You know, they say the entire network is going to be over there by SummerSlam, which is a long time away. Um, but, you know... I don't know, man. You know, I, I hopefully it'll be as easy to find everything as it is on the on the regular WWE network. I see that I'm looking now and Fastlane is is up. Uh it looks like now you can pause and rewind. So at the time of this recording, we're about an hour removed from Fastlane. And interestingly enough, the it looks like the pre show it's not loading right there it is. It looks like the pre-show is part of fat. Like when you click on Fastlane, it looks like the the you get the pre-show too, the kickoff show, which I mean, okay, feels like that's. Hopefully that won't stay that way as uh, as you keep going because I would imagine that at some point people would just want to watch the pay-per-view. But maybe that's just for the replay of it. You know, I I. I I think we're all just going to have to get reacclimated with how things work. I mean, I'm looking at it right now as we speak. That's why it probably sounds like I'm doing something else. But I think we're we're just going to have to get reacclimated with what we're used to doing. Like, you know, I, I hopefully though it, it seems like everything is kind of fitting into their format because like it says you click on fast lane and it says Fastlane five seasons, season one, season two, season three, season four. But that's actually Fastlane 2019, 2018, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, they don't actually have Fastlane in the Fastlane section yet. But it is on the front page as a replay. So I don't know. I mean, it'll be a work in progress for sure. But it's cool to see. Oh, they already got WCW Saturday night. Okay, all right. All right, never mind. I was worried. Okay, all right, I'm on board. They already got WCW Saturday Night from 1993 on Peacock. I was worried that we might lose some of these more obscure shows, but a WCW Saturday Night's already on there? Okay, I'm all right with it. I'm not getting angry. I'm not getting mad. All right, good, good. Hey, uh, while we're talking about stuff, before we move on to the, our interview with Andrew Goldstein, can we just take a second? It would be dishonest as a podcast. You know, we spent a long time. I love doing these podcasts right after pay-per-views because there's always so much to talk about, but we spent so much time talking about the botched explosion, the dud of an explosion in the John Moxley, uh, Kenny Omega death match. Can we just do this for a second? Can we talk about how incredible the Britt Baker Thunder Rosa match was on AW Dynamite. It was an unbelievable encounter between two extraordinarily talented professional wrestlers. This is my joy of hardcore wrestling. This is why I love when death matches are done right, when hardcore is done right. Like there's a reason. There's a reason for it. All the table spots, the thumbtacks, the blood, like it all told such a story. With these two, uh, you know, I, I said before, like 
when Thunder Rosa came up as a free agent, I really, I would love to see her in NXT. I would love to see Britt Baker in NXT or WWE for that matter. But I just thought that it was so, they, they did such a good job. It was another step forward for women's wrestling. You know, it's certainly that match has got to be the end of people kind of uh, besmirching the name of AEW's women's division. Because they go, all right, say what you want about the women's division, but we're going to go ahead and put on this uh, uh, unsanctioned match. And it's going to go in the pantheon of great women's wrestling matches. It was unbelievable. I mean, the ending made me cringe when she drove her head first through that table and everything. But, you know, I mean, it's part of it. You're going on the journey. I, I, I think everybody around that should be so proud of it. And I also think that as people who talk about wrestling, we have to be able to do both here. We have to be able to, to, if we find joy in the mishap of something going wrong, we also, just as human beings, have to be able to have so much joy in something going so, so right. That's a match that I would show anybody. It's, they, they did such a good job. There are two great things on that show. That match and MJF's promo was so, so good even by MJF's already high standards it was amazing but if you haven't watched the Britt Baker Thunder Rosa match make sure that you go back and watch the Britt Baker Thunder Rosa match because it was out of this world good unbelievable unbelievable uh they announced a couple of things happened these are little internet rumors but the internet uh noticed that uh there was a couple of things with the Hall of Fame WWE Network put up a collection, a Daniel Bryan collection that said WWE Hall of Fame 2021 inductee Daniel Bryan. But I think most people just think it was a mistake. Like just a, I think it's happened before. I think uh, Marsh in our Patreon Discord was saying that it, it happened to, with R-Truth last year. So, yeah, I, I think that's just one of those things that happened. But interestingly enough, and I don't know anything about it, but Batista, I guess is no longer on the list of people going into the 2020-2021 Hall of Fame class, which I would love to know why. I'm sure we'll get more information in the coming days or within the next week or so. Uh, but Eric Bischoff was added to the class. So now the class of 2021 that will be going in the same day as 2020 is uh, not only Molly Holly, but also Eric Bischoff, who I think is so deserving of going into the Hall of Fame on multiple levels. You know, Eric Bischoff, as a as a promoter, I, I think that now we're years removed from Nitro. And, you know, I, I feel like now, I feel like when WCW's demise was still fresh, there was a, a feeling of gloating happening with the WWE fans, and I think that that's fine. I'm one of them. Uh, but it was also the, the image of WCW in their final years was fresh in our memories. WCW in its final years was absolutely terrible. But the fact is, and WCW in 1995 and before that, the first half of the 90s was also just abysmal, horrible. But the fact is the WCW in 1996, 1997, and 1998 pushed wrestling forward in a way that Really, I don't know if we'd be at the point that we were at today if not for what Eric Bischoff was doing with Monday Nitro. 
Monday Nitro forced WWE's hand. You know, I think enough time has passed that we really need to look at it. First, I made the argument again on the Not Sam Wrestling WWE Network show. It truly was, you know, you could say that he got the idea from ECW. And if he got the idea from ECW, then that's still fine because he still is the one that brought it to sort of a mainstream American cable audience, international audience as well, when he brought all the cruiserweights in and he just let them do their thing. You know, still to this day, WWE hasn't done that. I don't think AEW does that. I don't think Impact did it. Like, you know, Impact had, you know, the X Division and everything. But when you're just like, no, we're bringing in Rey Mysterio. We're bringing in Psychosis. We're bringing in Juventud Guerrero. We're bringing in La Parca. We're bringing in L. Effin Dandy. We're bringing in Super Calo. We're bringing in Damian 666. We're bringing everybody in. And like Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, Lionheart Chris Jericho. And we're just going to let them go out there and do their thing. I think that the cruiserweights impacted so much of today's top tier talent. And if you look at the style of wrestling that is done today, especially outside of the WWE, I mean, the impact that the cruiserweight division had is all over it. And let's be honest, like it's a bunch of kids, anybody who's in their 30 was a kid in the 90s watching the cruiserweights on WCW, especially if they weren't the biggest guy in the world and they were sitting there doing backyard wrestling and they were like, well, you know, I can't do like big, giant, seven-foot-tall stuff, but I can learn how to do some of that Rey Mysterio stuff and figure out how to do some of that Juventud Guerrera stuff, you know, poorly, but I'll still figure out how to do it and you work on it and you work on it and, and you see, you see what's happened now with so much mainstream talent. And then you go into the the NWO and the realism of the NWO and how successful it was and how he just went with it and the anti-hero thing that the NWO really was. And, you know, being the on-screen showrunner that was a heel and and just everything, just putting it all on the table. I mean, even announcing the the results of the competitor's program in advance, like just really taking shots, really going to battle, creating controversy, making a show that people were going to talk about. It pushed WWE to be like, we have to be two hours long. We can't just do a wrestling show. We have to have edgy characters. We have to have realistic characters. We have to have moments that people will not believe happened. And that stuff has to be happening every week. Hugely impactful. Then you go into Eric Bischoff as a talent on air. And, and you know, while he's not going to go down as one of the great commentators of all time, maybe, it wasn't a bad commentator. But the stuff he did with the NWO being that obnoxious boss, and I think some of the best stuff he did on air was when he was in WWE on air. And he was the raw general manager. And he was managing three-minute warning. And he was interrupting Billy and Chuck and he was doing that and he was making out with Stephanie McMahon for some weird reason. Inexplicable. But I believed it because Easy e was in there. He's just so good. And now he keeps going, he keeps having an impact on professional wrestling. I love Eric Bischoff's podcast. I, I Eric Bischoff's podcast is one of the few that I listen to fairly regularly. I have, uh, I use, uh, what's it called? The, uh, I think downstream, is that the app? I don't, uh, let me see what the app is called. This is the podcast app 
that I use is called Downcast. And I don't go, sir, like, you know, I don't subscribe to a ton of them. I just have a handful of podcasts that I'll actually listen to, and they're just in the app. I don't have to go searching for stuff. It's just right there. And Bischoff's podcast is at the top of the list, baby. I listen all the time, so it's great. And I'm just, uh, I'm happy he's going in, man. It's a really, really good thing. All right, guys. We've, uh, we're going to move into our guest here on the show. Uh, Andrew Goldstein uh, is a friend of mine, somebody I've known for a long time. He's one of those guys that I don't even remember where I met him for the first time. But he has worked in television and in wrestling since he was a young man. Uh, you know, I mean, in, I think in his 20s, he filled out a job application and ended up getting a job uh, writing for WWE Creative. He was a member of the WWE creative team for a while, and then he left that, and he's he's produced a ton of TV shows. He's written for TV shows. He was working uh, at MTV for a long time. He was the EP at when VH1 did that Big Morning Buzz show. He actually ended up in the very beginning of the launch of WWE's uh, uh, podcast wing when they did you know when they first launched the graves podcast and the new day podcast he was the kind of ep or whatever the title was for that whole section so wrestling has followed him in his media career wherever he's gone and he's now the showrunner for dark side of the ring confidential which is on vice tv every tuesday at 9 p.m and they basically take i think eight of the best dark side of the ring documentaries that have already aired and uh, Conrad Thompson sits down uh, with Evan Husney and Jason Eisner, who we've had on the podcast before, who are the filmmakers of all these documentaries. And they add about 30 minutes of additional uh, interview footage where Conrad talks to them, asks them questions, and then they show deleted scenes from all of it. And it's just so, because all the documentaries are so good anyway. So to now have this additional footage is just, uh, it's just so much fun. It's so great. And uh, knowing that uh, Goldstein is is the showrunner on this and knowing that he's one of us makes the show even better. So I wanted to talk to him not only about the show, but about all the topics that the show covers and how much fun they are. So here it is. Let's go old school with Andrew Goldstein here on uh, Not Sam Wrestling. Let's hit it. The Not Sam Wrestling Interview. Joining us now, somebody that I've known for a long time. And, and you know, I, I love people in this crazy world of entertainment that can figure out how to not only attach their love and their passion for professional wrestling to it, but see it through. You know what I mean? Like over the course of that career, uh, uh, continue to have professional wrestling be a part of the journey. Um, and Andrew Goldstein, for you... I feel like throughout the years, I mean, it starts, of course, early when you're writing for your, you know, you're in WWE creative at a pretty young age. But I feel like as your career's progressed and you're a showrunner and you're producing shows and you're writing and everything, you've done a really interesting job at, at always having wrestling projects be a part of what you're doing. Yeah, man. Well, first off, thank you for having me. I appreciate the, the, the platform and obviously a huge fan of everything you're doing. Um, yeah, dude, I, my joke has been wrestling keeps finding me. <laughs> like, uh, you know, 15 years ago, I answered an ad on a job aggregator site and got on WWE Creative. That's a very uh, truncated version of the story, but that's basically what happened. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, you know, here we are 15 years later with a couple stops um, in between where I got to do some cool stuff with wrestling where, yeah, um, ne basically never in my life did, did I think my career would ever intersect with the story of the Von Erics and the story <laughs> of Gino Hernandez and the story of Bruiser Brody. So like, you know, um, growing up, the, the WWE was my outward fandom, but my, this is so cheesy, but my heart was really with the territories. Like I grew up in the magazine era. I grew up, um, you know, can't, you know, so excited to flip the channel from superstars and challenge to JCP on channel 17 in Philadelphia at one, you know, at noon or one o'clock. And then at night, then on Saturday night, like, getting up from the dinner table because this weird channel 48 had you had world class and I had to like jiggle the, the, you know, the bunny ears. So like, I, you know, that's from like age eight to nap, like to get to talk about things like the road wars and bruiser Brody and, and, and all of that has just been such a thrill. And obviously we'll get into the format and what the show is and stuff, but what you said is exactly right. I, I just keep, uh, the universe keeps putting me and wrestling together. So it's not so, because that's what I was wondering with you. It's not so much like that you're seeking out, or maybe it is. Like, do you seek out networks that are doing wrestling-related stuff to go like, hey, I mean, I kind of have an expertise and a passion at this. I can be connected to it. Or is it kind of the other way around where, you know, you're kind of known as a person who knows how to do television and also gets and loves wrestling. So your name comes up in those conversations. So uh, two answers to that. What you just said is exactly what happened on Dark Side of the Ring Confidential. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine at Vice who uh, was um, Action Bronson's producer on Fuck That's Delicious uh, for all those years, I reached out to him because I was in between gigs. And I said, hey, man, would love to reconnect. And he was like, look, I have nothing for you now, but I know the guy, the Dark Side of the Ring guys are looking for somebody. And he connected us. And basically they said to me, we, you're a unicorn. Like we've been trying to find somebody who a has the sort of talk show showrunner experience, but also has the like depth of knowledge and respect for wrestling to bring it together. Because, you know, at, during the first two seasons, they did an after show. Right. That didn't really work out that well. Uh, not for lack of trying by anybody on the those production teams, but it was there just there there was just sort of a disconnect between like the you know the knowledge needed to kind of like con contextualize what needs to be talked about, um, and so they they you know we were put in touch and 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 they they trusted me to help them expand on the stories that they already told. And uh, it was really cool. But to, to your original point, like my, you know, I did four years at Spike TV where I, I really learned how to, you know, I transitioned from writer to producer in those four years at Spike. And while I was there, they were already, they were already making TNA. And so I kind of just raised my hand and said, Hey guys, I'm here doing other things, but if you need anybody, any, any help, I, you know, I've been a wrestling fan since 86. And so then they threw me on, the weekly episodic promos for impact. I got to do the, the wrestling matters, uh, the, the, the campaign chain where they changed from TNA to impact wrestling. I did that whole campaign, got to spend a week with Hogan. It was really cool stuff. So, and then, you know, I, 
just two years ago, I was a, uh, an executive at Endeavor Audio, which was the podcast arm of William Morris Endeavor. And it just so happened that they had just signed the deal with WWE to launch their podcast network. Right. So it was like, again, kismet. Like, it just keeps happening. It, 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 I wasn't looking for it. It finds me. So uh, a, a little uh, five of one or two. What is it? Six of one, half dozen of the other. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Although sometimes it's, yeah, sometimes it's five. You know, who's counting? Like, what are we, what are we nitpicking here? Come on. We're but, wrestling fans. We're not supposed to know math. Yeah, exactly. But it's so you triggered something in my memory though when you were just talking about like your love for the territories because it really is. We're about the same age, and like the magazine era was really that. It was this era. It was like right before the internet. When I mean, I remember that like when TL Hopper debuted in WWE, I was excited because I knew. Dirty white boy, Tony Anthony from Pro Wrestling Illustrated. And I was like, I've seen pictures of this guy, but I've never seen him wrestle. And I mean, I didn't realize that T.L. Hopper wasn't actually going to be, you know, designed to display what this athlete can do as much as uh, what other athletes could do. But when you were talking about finding uh, territories on, on, on like your, on your TV set and messing with the bunny ear antennas and stuff like that, I just, I literally just remembered, because I would have told you I grew up a WWE fan, hardcore WWE fan, always been a hardcore WWE fan, always will be a hardcore WWE fan. But also I was all about the magazines. And then I got more into the territories when I was in high school and I was tape trading because like I completely fell in love with world class when I started getting all those tapes. But I haven't thought about this part of it in 25 years or more. I love it. I remember... We'd go on road trips. Like my dad never liked spending money on plane tickets. So every summer when we would go to Detroit and we'd go to Kentucky and we'd go all over the place, he would just load us all into the car and we'd go on road trips. And a lot of times we'd stay overnight at motels in like Ohio or wherever the midpoint was. And I'm just now remembering how exciting it would be when every now and then, because it wasn't like it wasn't like it is now where you'd go and it's like this kind of networked cable system that every Hilton has. It'd be like you could get the local channels. Right. And every now and then you could tap in to a local television station and they would have some kind of local wrestling territory and you'd lose your mind because it's like this whole other thing has been yeah. sitting here the whole time and and for this one night because like you know we're, we're gonna get back on the road tomorrow but tonight i get to live in this and i'd be glued to whatever little weird local territory that was just as the territories were starting to kind of completely go out yeah. of business I, I mean i legit you know get chills thinking about things like that because <clears throat> For me, uh, the magazines were everything, man. Like my dad would take me to 7-Eleven or this, what were called news agencies. They were like basically like smoke shops, but also that had every magazine imaginable. Yeah. And the, you know, I'm like eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. And I'm handing my dad this like stack of magazines, all of which had like gruesomely bloody <laughs> pictures of Dusty Rhodes and Carlos Colon and, you know, like, the other thing, too, is like, yeah, I got to see Dusty because I got um, NWA, but there's a whole litany of wrestlers that I never, ever had any opportunity to ever see work mm -hmm. until YouTube. 
like Ox Baker and Yeezer Brody and Carlos Colon and all these cover, you know, these guys that were on the covers of all these magazines, like the sheep herders, like I didn't see them until, you know, I found world class randomly. And um, I was WWE, WWF and, and WWE entertained me. And that was like what I went to school talking about, but like my hidden, you know, obsession was like, wondering about the fabulous ones uh you know and who who they were and why why can't i ever see them and are they are they as good as they look and you know reading reading the um the territory top tens in all the magazines yeah and seeing which wrestlers crossed over and be like wait if he's in mid-south how's he also in the nwa and like you know expanding my mind to understand the territories and and uh what you know oh man i would love to be I would love to live in Texas for a year and get to watch world class like on my TV as it happens. Yeah, because and go through wrestling at the Sportatorium. Oh, I know. Because there's this feeling of like exploration. You were like, oh, there's more to this than just tuning it in on my television set. Like, I mean, you know, like I was like you. I'd go, it was the stationary store living in New York. It was just called the stationary store, but it would yeah. be like, yeah, it was a smoke shop and you could buy candy and notebooks and every magazine imaginable. And like every month it would be WWE magazine, WCW magazine, inside wrestling, the wrestler pro wrestling illustrated. I mean, Do back you, main event magazine. If you go you back remember long enough, wrestling, I Re- I'm <laughs> wrestling. Wrestling. I had the bloodiest covers <laughs> that I'm sure. I, yeah. Wrestling Eye was my jam, and I don't think it was an aftermag, but um, Wrestling Eye always had, like, uh, these, like, jabroni-looking women's wrestlers, on, you know, in them. And yeah. Stuff, like, and they all, like, Crystal Blue, something, <laughs> you know? They all had, like, these crazy names. And, um, yeah, man, I was just really, I was, I was really obsessed with things like the Fantastics and... Um, yeah. Uh, these stories, like, Ox Baker killed a guy in a ring with the heart punch. Like, <laughs> yeah. I was fascinated as a child reading those stories yeah me too and i remember i think i might have been like a freshman in high school when or maybe i was younger maybe it was middle school when a friend of mine had this like big hardcover book i think i i don't know if after or somebody associated with the after magazines put it out i think somebody did but it was like a hardcover book and i think it was called this is wrestling or something like that it was like a white cover and it was just like pictures yeah okay you know exactly the book i'm talking about i had it it was the first time i'm looking through it and i look at this picture and it's the bushwhackers but they're mean and they're Mm -hmm. bloody and they're violent and i'm like what is this? Because I'd never even known there was an exist. I didn't know what the sheep herders were. I didn't know. I thought one day God created the bushwhackers and they just showed up and they were right. licking kids' heads and that was it. And when I saw now, that, I was like, oh my God. And that was the cool part of, about watching WWF at the time because you would just turn on Superstars or, or Challenge and you'd either see a vignette or you'd see them debut. You'd see Kerry Von Erich. You'd see mm-hmm. the sheep herders. You'd see Dusty. But they were these, you know, sort of PG-13 versions. But you knew, you had that secret knowledge that you knew, like, oh, no, these guys are actually really serious. Like Terry Funk. Yeah. You you had this, like, secret knowledge that other kids didn't know. Yeah. And so, like, I would go to school and they would be talking about Texas Tornado. And I'd be like, did you know that he has (laughs) five other brothers and they used to dominate Texas and the Freebirds and the the double, you know, the, the heel turn? 
And that's not um, an easy thing to do. Like to be that kid before the internet, you had to put yeah, your work creative in. Creative champions. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, uh, it was it was great. Those, I you know, you sound like such a get off my lawn type of guy, but it's just like kid, young fans don't get the mag. Like I feel for them because they don't have that like that uh, that fascination with seeing a magazine and never having no opportunity to actually see these guys work. And so the mystique created just from flipping through a magazine and seeing these covers, because now you can, a kid can hear about a wrestler like a Will Ospreay and just type his name into YouTube and see every match he's ever done. But to this day, I've never seen a Colonel De Beers match. Right. I know everything about the guy's career. I've never watched him work. Yeah. Yeah, of course you do. Yeah, I mean, that's why I got so excited when Dark Side of the Ring first came out. That's why, I mean, I've had those guys on the podcast a bunch of times. And that's why I'm so excited about that the, you guys are redoing some of the better uh, uh, docs, although I love them all, with even more information. Because it's not so much like, I think a lot of people get caught up on the Dark Side part of it, like where they go like, oh, this is the scandal, and I want to know what the seedy side of it and what's really going on. And like... For me, like, that's not it. For me, I'm losing my mind because on this mainstream cable channel, Mm -hmm. there's a documentary about Bruiser Brody or there's a documentary about Herb Abrams. When they were like, we're doing a Herb Abrams episode, I lost my mind. And it's not not because you want the seedy underbelly. We're finally going to know the truth. It's because there's going to be a cable channel on television that's Mm -hmm. putting out a really good Herb Abrams documentary by a couple of guys who like live and breathe this stuff that are going to do right by this amazing wrestling story. That was the coolest part. One of the coolest parts was like just working with Evan and Jason and watching, getting to know them. And I mean, those dudes have such a respect yeah. for the stories they're telling. They have such a, an appreciation for the talent that they're making relations with, making, uh, you know, starting relationships with. And um, they, t- they have such care for these stories and they are not the they are not salacious um you know uh looking for that 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 like real true crimey you know that they want to like uncover something they just want to tell these stories to a larger audience because they they realized in trying to pitch a scripted series that there isn't enough education in the world uh that wrestling isn't just what happens in the ring. And so a big part of, and a a thing they talk about often at the table on confidential is how part of what they wanted to do with dark side of the ring is to educate non non wrestling fans or sort of light wrestling fans or fans who were fans and, you know, lapsed wrestling fans of like, here's the backstage. Here's how it works. Here's the language they speak. Here are the politics. Here is the drama. Here's the fallout that happens to a family when somebody decides to be a wrestler. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted to tell those stories, which those stories cross all lines into TV drama, into TV comedy, into true crime, all of that. Like all of those stories are human stories. It's not just about the guy putting on his boots and putting on his tights and winning title belts and, and cutting promos. It's about everything else. And that's re- that's the that's sort of their I mean, if I could speak for them, I think that's really one of the main their main goals in doing Dark Side of the Ring is to educate people that wrestling is like this this like drama filled um 
this like drama filled genre outside of what you just see on TV. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing that they, my favorite part is that they do it in a way where a non-wrestling fan will get as much out of it as they would any other documentary. You know, I could put this on for my wife and like, it's just a, it's a story at the end of the day. It happens to be in the world of wrestling, but it's a story, but they also do it in a way where a wrestling fan still doesn't feel like they're being spoken down to. Like they don't feel like, Oh, I'm watching this dumbed down thing. So there's somebody who doesn't watch it, get it. Like there's no beginning part where they're like, kayfabe means blah 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 and you're like oh it's one of these exactly like exactly they they really struck the like the perfect tone um and to what you said about like anybody could tune tune into a dark side of the ring episode and get it my father-in-law who uh if i bring up wrestling talks to me about killer kowalski (laughs) and uh he he watched the first episode called me the next day and i picked up the phone and he just goes I don't think they murdered Gino. I think he, I think he just OD'd. I think he just had a bit of, you know, he had too much fun. Yeah. And, uh, and he OD'd. Like he watched it as a dateline, as like a dateline yes. crime story. And so uh, these, these it, just because it's the anchor is in wrestling, these are human, big human stories. And so it was really cool to to expand on these stories and unpack um, unpack the stories and get into the making of because, you know, you watch them and they're so artistic with the recreations. Mm-hmm. And a, a big part of our show is talking about how those recreations got made, the con- the conceptualization behind them. And um, we show a lot of deleted scenes where you kind of get to see um, the, guy, the people playing these roles, how they cast those roles, how they taught these people these actors how to do wrestling moves and all that all that cool stuff that you think about when you watch an episode yeah. but you have no means to find these answers that's that was kind of our goal was to unpack all that while you're watching the show it's awesome yeah because that is those are the questions that are going to come up but i mean like that goes back to the original point the fact that episode one was the gino hernandez episode and i mean i'm as hardcore a fan as you're gonna find you're as hardcore a fan as anybody's gonna find like i don't know about you but I knew who Gino Hernandez was. I was familiar with his work in the ring. Because of the mags, by the way. Because of the magazines, absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't sit there and chronicled his career live as it was happening. I didn't have access to it. But I didn't know the Gino Hernandez story. Like, it's a risk. Talk about niche. Talk about, like, this is a a, a pure wrestling story. But it's also just such a good story that not only does it make season one... (laughs) But when you go to revisit the docs, it's like, well, we're going to prove that this that these docs are worth revisiting by going even further in depth into the Gino Hernandez story. And I'm like, I love it. I love that you didn't go with a sexy name. I love that you didn't go with like, uh, here's what really happened with The Rock, like something that everybody's just it's like, I mean, it's the story first. We debated show order a lot and it it really came down to I was like. Gino, it, it's a true crime story. So it doesn't matter that Gino's not this household name. A, it's one of the best episodes they put together. And I B, agree. The the um the che- the the discussion that we had at the table about the Gino story was um some of the best. You know, we had we had some shocking revelations that they couldn't fit into the episode. You know, um, in one of our deleted scenes, we have Gino's bomb for the first time talking about how um, 
she was married secretly to Jimmy Snooker for 10 years. Like, <laughs> head explode. Yeah. So it was crazy. So all of that to say, like, we could have done, we could have led with Screwjob. We could have led with Owen, these sort of huge mainstream names. We could have led with the Road Warriors. But Gino was, I mean, it's such a compelling story. Yeah. And for me, I marked out just because, just, I marked out just making the episode, our episode, because it was like, names like chris adams were coming up and i was like oh i know who chris adams is yes you know and like i'm i'm on phone calls in my profession during the day during my professional hours but i'm on phone calls with like vice lawyers and vice executives talking about hey can we fair use like i'm having fair use legal conversations about pictures of chris adams (laughs) like to me it was such a mind f because i was just like here are the annoying conversations you have to have as a showrunner as a tv producer but i'm getting to have those annoying conversations about people like gentleman chris adams and you know david von eric like it was and abdul the butcher like it was so i mean the amount of emails I had about Abdullah the Butcher footage with like <laughs> lawyers and executives is just, I never in a million years would have thought that would ever be part of my career. But it's got to be the funnest thing in the world because it's not like the email is, oh, they're going to tell me that I can't use, I can't talk about Chris Adams because who would watch a thing about gentleman Chris Adams? Like it's, it's established. Like, of course, it's essential to the story. We're definitely going to talk about gentleman Chris Adams. It's just... These emails are how. So you've already gotten through the hurdle. It's like the yeah, rest I, of it is just fun. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I spent a really long part of a large part of my career at MTV, mm-hmm. uh, where um, so conversations like I mean, obviously we're talking about Vice and wrestling and i'm just saying if if a series like this were on mtv those questions would have come up of like "Eh, i don't know if anybody knows who uh baby doll is so even though that that footage is really cool at the end where she has her own theory that kind of proves that gina was murdered let's not use it because we don't need to I don't think people know who she is. I meanwhile, I was just like, we have a piece of footage from Baby Doll. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm the biggest Dusty Rhodes fan. <laughs> Shameful is my favorite promo of all time. Mm-hmm. I get into arguments every every year around his the anniversary of his passing. That Shameful is a better promo than hard than time. Hard Times, and it's all about ba- you know. I I watched the Baby Doll turn. I I was you know. I love so that was super cool for me that we ended the Gino episode on a on a deleted scene with uh, with Baby Doll, but things like that. It was just so cool that my professional life intersected with this like esoteric knowledge that like I'm still to this day, all these years later, I get so fascinated still by just hearing names like gentleman Chris Adams, Abdullah the Butcher, Carlos Colon. Um, you know, in the Road Warriors episode, we're talking about Paul Ellering and the Midnight Express, and and uh, it it just it was it was really a thrill. How much did you know about the Gino Hernandez story, other than you know, kind of the broad strokes, before the documentary came out and before you got involved in all this? Well, so they credit the seed being planted in their heads to do the to research the Gino story for a possible episode with the Bruce podcast where the Houston yeah. wrestling episode of um, something to wrestle and they, and Bruce kind of told the story and then they told, and so they were like, okay, that was where the seed was planted. But going into researching 
the story, there was a very real possibility that once we, that Evan and Jason, this I'm talking about, mm-hmm. Evan and Jason do the research, it just turns out it's a, it's a guy who OD'd and we move on and there's no story there and we don't make an episode. Um, but as they traveled down the road, it got shadier and shadier and more conspiratorial conspiratorial. And, you know, they found all the conspiracy theories and it became this huge story. And as for me, I mean, I knew the broad strokes Mm -hmm. and then I watched the episode when it originally aired. Um, and I learned, and I also, I had heard the podcast, I watched the episode and I went into making our episode with that sort of base of knowledge. And now I feel like a bit of a, a bit of a weird expert just because I've watched <laughs> our episode and their episode like 17 million times, but I have my own theories, you know, the whole thing. I love, uh, I love all the opinions that end up in these things though. Like the Montreal episode, I'm sitting there going like, okay, I get doing it because that's going to be a fascinating story that you're always going to find somebody. It's just a fascinating story. And I'm never going to be against, listening to somebody tell their perspective of the story again. However, I am going to go in more often than not assuming I already know everything, right? Like I, like I, I, I've got all this information. They coined the phrase in the episode of, um, uh, screw job fatigue. Right. We talked about it. We debated, do we do this episode? Cause I mean, it's the first question out of act one, cause I wrote it, which was (laughs) this story has been, I mean, Conrad says this story has been talked about, to death. So why, why, why did you guys want to tell it? And their answer was, it's a really good microcosm of the business. So for somebody who doesn't know the story or know how wrestling works, it gives you a window into the backstage politics and the cutthroat, you know, what kayfabe is the fourth wall, um, you know, doing the, you know, um, uh, uh, doing doing favors for somebody on their way out, like all these tried and true traditions come up in the story of the Montreal Screwjob. So for them, it was almost they're like, here is the way of like wink, wink, giving re- giving people the here's how wrestling works. To to your earlier point of like not just like putting kayfabe on the screen with a dictionary definition, like this was their way of telling of 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 explaining that to people. You know what for me made that episode, please. Scott Hall saying it was a work still to this day. I mean, it's like the fe- when you're going like, cause it's one thing, it's one thing to be like, some people think it's a work, but blah, blah, blah. But when you've got somebody like Scott Hall, who is as knowledgeable as he is, who's in the business as much as he is, who is theoretically is as close to Triple H and Shawn Michaels as he is going, it's a work, work, brother. It's a work. work. I'm like, he's like watching on a laptop, like, (laughs) you know, like, like, like uh, Michael Jordan and his documentary, but it's a work, but it's, I mean, and everything you just said, I mean, Evan talks about it at the table, which is just like, Scott Hall's part of the clique. Like at <laughs> yeah. any point in the last 15 years or 20 years, he could have just pulled Sean aside and been like, yeah, or like on a car ride being like, didn't they all talk about the screw job? Like how does he think it's a work? And, you know? Yeah. But I mean, that's wrestling. That's wrestling. Like yeah. that is wrestling. Scott Hall. But he, might be work- he might be working all of us. We don't know. That's, but that's wrestling. Like it does. Is he so paranoid that he thinks it's a work still, or is he working us and keeping us paranoid? Like that, this, this, but he, this. Here's the crazy part. Yeah. Here's the crazy part. If you watch it, and I, I implore your audience to go and watch our episode, uh, he kind of makes some sense. Like, why is Kevin Dunn 
in the camera? Why is he taking the close up of Vince getting spit on? Yep. It does make sense. If this is clearly something that's happening off script, wouldn't they cut to the stands? Wouldn't they cut to a crowd shot? And why do they have that shot? Why do they even have it? Why is there a close up on Vince's face in that moment? Wiping wiping the loogie from his eye. And Scott's like, this is, it's a million dollar company, man. Like, <laughs> you think that, so it, that's the thing. And it, it, it makes you leave that episode being like, ah, I, I, I've had all these preconceived notions about the screw job, but I don't know. That kind of makes sense a little bit. Yeah. I love Scott. He's so great. Much. Yeah. He's, 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 he's the greatest. Do you guys do an episode on Bruiser Brody? Like, do you revisit that? Bruiser? Oh, yeah. Bro- okay. So Bruiser Brody was the, the dark side pilot. And right. um, we we did a confidential for Brody, of course, like it, it's Evan and Jason's baby. Right. Um, they are huge. They're the biggest Brody fans I've ever met. I mean, they have the toys. They they have the sweat. They have this, the, the T-shirts. They they spent like, you know, they spent so much time with Brody's widow and yeah. Brody's son. Um, the I will t- I will a bit of a spoiler alert, but I think it's coming in three weeks. Um the deleted scenes, the extras, the bonus clips, the bonus clip we have of their time with at Abdullah the Butcher's house. <laughs> some of the most compelling, uh, some of the most compelling stuff in in the series. It's so. I mean, look, Brody is a very tough subject because it's so tragic, and so part of it was how do we lighten the mood? And w- luckily, we had some of this like really compelling. Uh, funny footage of the day they spent with Abdul the Butcher at his house. Um, I mean, you know, I'll give something away. He chases, he basically, and, and you'll see the clip in the show, he chases Jason with a pair of scissors in his mouth. I mean, he has a walker. He's like 300 pounds. He's, he's got a walker, but he's he's chasing, J, you know, Jason with a pair of scissors and like n- never dropping the gimmick. That's he's awesome. In his seventies, like he can he can relax now. He's not, <laughs> but at no point did he drop the gimmick, and so um, the Brody episode is really really special to those guys, and it's it's special to me. I mean, we it, it, it's we have um, the special guest in that episode is Savio Vega, who tells a a really sort of uh, fly on the wall his version because he was in the locker room. He was TNT in Puerto Rico at the time. Yeah. Uh, Like he was at the mirror in the bathroom, putting his face paint on when the whole thing went down. So he tells that story, which didn't, you know, obviously that wasn't in the episode. So really, really cool stuff to, again, expand on the original hour that they put together. We put together an extra 30 minutes of, Hey, wait, what, wait, what happened at that point? And what did he say? And who, what, tell us about Tony Atlas and, why didn't the cops show up sooner? And what happened in the trial? What happened to the murder weapon? All those questions that when you watch a true crime story, yeah. you like only you can only go to Wikipedia to get some answers. Now you kind of get the answers immediately. Yeah, I mean, but it's also with that one, I loved it because I, I mean, I'm a huge Brody fan myself. But I also found it really interesting that there were people involved in that one that still wouldn't talk. Yeah. Because of... We- because yeah. of how, you know, because there's still people alive that were theoretically involved that certain people don't want to cross in the wrong I mean, way. Jose Gonzalez went on to have a very fruitful career. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, tried to make an angle out of it in Japan. Like, th- this story is, it's really, really insane. 
and like the shadiness that went on with the trial with the all the american wrestlers who were in the locker room at the time um they all got their subpoenas like a week after the trial and you know just like it's just so so corrupt so much corruption and dudes like carlos cologne and and jose gonzalez just are, are you know and and to an extent you know abdul the butcher like I think all these dudes know more than they'll ever say um, while they're breathing. Yeah, yeah. Then that's my point, that with stuff like that, that as fascinating as it all is, it must also get frustrating at points when you know that there's more here. Like, you know, in your search, you're like, I found the person who knows, but they will never say, yeah. you know? Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's just, it's what it, it's such a wild story. I mean, when you and, you know, look, th that episode really becomes the Tony Atlas story mm -hmm. because so much of the episode on the back half focuses on Tony and sort of um, he's reliving it in the, the documentary interview. Like yeah. you can see he's affected by telling this story. He wants to get it out. And we, we show footage of him like begging them to be like, guys, can, I need to tell this story. I've been sitting, you know, I've been sitting on it my whole life. Um, he's so affected by it to this day. It's like, it's like PTSD when they ask him certain questions. And so um, it's still, I mean, it's uh, it, like I said, one of the more, obviously one of the more tragic stories that, and, and obviously doing Owen is it was such a hard episode to do in our format because it's like 30 extra minutes we're chatting we're talking we don't want to just talk about sad stuff we don't want to just talk about how how tragic it is how can we have a little bit of fun luckily owen has the side to him of like everybody's got a great owen rib story there's you know there's all that fun stuff of owen and so you'll see you know we overtly say at the table like we're going to switch switch gears here from a really tra from the really tragic story and try to have try to lighten the mood here and we and we get into some of the ribbing and the, the you know uh, a bunch of wrestlers have remembrances of Owen in the episode it's it's really sweet and really special especially Blue Meanie at the at the end who's our live special guest yeah that's great and I'm glad Blue Meanie is the live special guest too because I it's I I love the choice to do the show at the old ECW arena, the, I guess, the, what's it called? The 2300 arena now? 2300. I, you, I can tell that story. So um, in pre-production, we were, it would, look, this was end of November, beginning of December. And our shoot was going to be middle to end of December. If you remember, pre-holiday major COVID spike. Right. Now we were supposed to shoot in a warehouse in Brooklyn, like a nondescript documentary style warehouse, you know, gray columns, big windows, you know, like a, like a regular like the, true crime, the, you know, detective interview. Like the opening uh, to the Roy's War video game for PlayStation? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. So we were slated to shoot in, in like a nondescript warehouse in Brooklyn, but when the, when the COVID spike happened, um, the rules for, we had to get Jason from Canada to New York. Right. Jason Eisner. Uh, and so the rules for somebody coming from out of the country into, into this, not just the United States, but into New York were downright impossible. And so we, we quickly had to pivot to Philly. So my production call, manager calls me, tells me all of this and says, we're pivoting to Philly. We, we're scouting. We're going to scout locations. And I said, dude, I have the location. If we're going to Philly, I'm from Philly. So like, you know, I know uh, immediately I was just like, call the 2300 arena. I mean, 
we're doing the new Jack story. Like we have to shoot in, in the ECW arena. And luckily because of COVID they were like shut down, like they weren't having events. So right. we never would have gotten in if they were, you know, up and running. So it was a bunch of like, you know, wink, wink, thankful, you know, it's one of the like thankful, you know, thank God for the pandemic only because it, it gave us the opportunity to shoot at the ECW arena, which is so, so surreal, especially doing new Jack, which he had spilled blood, like on the spot where we were sitting. Yeah. Yeah. So what are the, what are the eight episodes that we're revisiting for confidential? Okay. We did Gino Hernandez. Gino uh, was week was our premiere. We did screw job yep. this week coming up to the Von Eriks, which is just like, come, you know, a dream come true to, to be talking about that family. Yeah. Um, again, super tragic episode, but, um, really, really cool. Um, fascinating details that the guys, that the guys found out, um, and talk about, um, Brody, new Jack, Owen, Herb, and the Road Warriors. So the the Road Warriors. That's eight. Yeah, that makes sense. The Road Warriors one is interesting to me because the Road Warriors one I felt more than, and maybe it's just because I know the Road Warriors so well, but I felt like there's so much more to cover. You know, that was one yeah. of them. I actually felt that way about New Jack a little bit too, and maybe that's because the Road Warriors and New Jack were both more kind of uh, full picture things not about a specific event like the Gino Hernandez story you know while we set up who Gino Hernandez is and we talk about the background realistically it is about the mysterious way in which he died the Bruiser Brody documentary while it is about Brody realistically it's about the circumstances in which he yeah. died I, so, I feel like the Road Warriors and New Jack it's more kind of an overarching view of those two and I feel like for somebody in your position that's like, okay, we got to get another 30 minutes of content out of this. I feel like those two stories specifically, you must have had a lot, Road Warriors more than New Jack, a lot of room to play. Yeah, so there's sort of two types of Dark Side episodes. There's career retros, there's sort of career looks. Yeah. Which is like, this is the life of somebody who led a tragic life. And then there are, this was a an event that had tragic uh, consequences. So, you know, like we didn't do Brawl for All, but Brawl for All is, a, you know, you look at that, you're just like, oh, that was just like a weird match. Like, right. why are they doing a documentary about that? But there's a tragic story that the, the fallout. So basically, it's like story, uh, stories of like things that happened and stories of like people's, you know, people's lives that, that, that ended up tragic or were tragic. In the case of the Road Wars, what's I mean, the top line for me to to sort of tease that people need to watch this is it's really I mean, I don't have this for sure, but it's probably the last on camera, you know, telling of the story of the Road Wars by Joe Laurinaitis before he passes away. I mean, they made the episode and a few months later he passed away. And then here we come making confidential yeah. and we have all of this unused footage and all the this like sort of amazing sort of prophetic stuff, you know, footage of Joe talking um, about Hawk and he, he and Hawk and their relationship. And it all takes on all this new meaning because he has not since passed away. Um, and now we don't have any of the road warriors. Um, and so that episode takes on like a really new, important meaning. Yeah. When you watch it. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. I didn't even really think of that, but that's, 
That's completely true. And the Road Warriors, too, they're so interesting because, you know, you hear Road Warriors pop and, like, all these references. And if you're a kid watching WWF at the time and you know the Legion of Doom, like, and that's kind of your exposure to them, you don't even realize that, like, people don't even look at that. People look at that as the, like, kind of downside of their career. You know what I mean? Like, the Road Warriors career, people look at the peak of Road Warriors as, like, 80s. Crockett Road Warriors. Yeah, but I mean, you know, they they had those huge shows in WWE. Yeah. Uh, the, the motorcycle down to the ring. And, you know, that story is told in the episode. But um, what's interesting, uh, again, I wrote the scripts. And so, like, the questions asked at the table, like, who, what did you guys think of when the Road Warriors changed their name and showed up on WWF TV as the Legion of Doom? Mm-hmm. And you know, Evan's answer is like, we're of the age where like that was prime fandom for us. So to us, like the Road Warriors are the Legion of Doom. Same. But making this episode got made them watch all of the Road Warriors footage. And now they, they have this like new appreciation for like the black shoulder pads era and the chains era as opposed to the red shoulder pads and the, you know, what the, the Legion of Doom era. And so it, we kind of like live vicariously through Evan and Jason, like, t- you know, uh, becoming new fans of the Road Wars, even though they're already huge fans of them to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. And you get to kind of like hear about all of that. Like they're huge Road Wars fans. And we have like these cool moments of like, you know, they had custom shoulder pads made for the reenactment actors. And so, of course, Evan and Jason <laughs> you know, tried them on and, and we, we tell that story. And I mean, we Evan and Jason like legit wear Zubaz pants like out in public to, in 2021. Like that's how, like they had they have um, the Road Wars, the AWA Road Wars wrestling figures that they like, you know, look to as as like you know, prize possessions. Like they're the real deal in terms of like markety mark, mark, mark. Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. I, I love, I assumed Herb Abrams was going to be one of the people that you took another look at, but now I like it even more that I think it, I, I think it was Evan that was wearing his UWF sweatshirt on like one of the episodes. And I, I love it even more that he's yeah. just rocking his UWF well, sweatshirt. Every he likes episode his... they rep that they rep um the dark side of the ring pro wrestling tees line. Which yeah, smart. They in they, they got murdered. I, I can't. I don't know the exact details, but in making these episodes, they got some of the families to sort of work on it, get them deals with pro wrestling tees to recreate some of this icon. You know iconic um imagery yeah shirts and sweatshirts and so they rep all that at the table in every episode so you'll see um evan in a woman sweatshirt uh you know the road warrior sweatshirt that jason wears um there's the harley race shirt that that actually um tony atlas drew that they use that drawing on the t-shirt so it's really really uh really cool stuff but in terms of herb abrams to be perfectly honest, I didn't know that story. I knew about the UW that that version of the UWF. Yeah, but I didn't know Herb Abrams. I didn't know the story of cocaine and cowboy boots. I didn't know any of it. So watching the episode, I was just like, "Holy crap!" And then obviously getting to make our episode, like 
really learning and really getting into it and and finding out where all his money came from and hearing about the main events of his like the pay-per-views were terrible but the matches were actually kind of great if you look back at the talent Uh we have all we have like mick foley talking about talking extensively more than he does in the episode yeah about how he basically credits herb abrams in the uwf for giving him the reps enough to figure out who he is as a character and give him the reps on the mic to to figure out how to be what we eventually learned was cactus jack and mankind like you know, we talk about Mick Foley today as one of the best on the mic of all time. He learned how to do that only because Herb Abrams was like, yeah, go cut a 20 minute promo. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, you know, you, you, the school that he went to was no, just go out there and do whatever you want. So you would drop your elbow off the apron and, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, take years off your life. But no, we do not want to hear Cactus Jack talk. <laughs> it, it wasn't until, you know, the casino, um, the blackjack brawl. Yeah. Where, you know, Mick Foley got to talk. Yeah. Yeah. And then he ends up like going on to be a promo guy. Like he's, I mean, the, the, like go to, you know, emotional promo guy in history. I mean, I think the only reason the, the mankind character worked in the very big, first of all, okay. There's two reasons. I think the mankind character worked, especially in the evolution of it. Number one, the debut worked because his promos were actually really good from the basement, like the vignettes when he was like playing with the rat and he was like on his way to the WWE because yeah. he, he, he believed it. Like he had that, like that high pitched, like shrill in his voice. Yeah. And then his ability to through promos more so than wrestling, uh, evolved the character to the point where he's just kind of this like lovable, weird, oaf that has this paternal love for vince when he like yeah hugs him and thanks dad and it's just like it's just like you but but it's tough to do that if you're anybody besides mick foley because you somehow have to convince an audience over the course of a couple years that it makes sense that that character would now be doing this yeah and that and you know and uh that promo he cuts at the end of his ecw run oh is you know it's just like he doesn't make he doesn't cut that promo if he doesn't have the stage to learn how to 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 emote on camera in the UW in this like fledgling you know money pit of the UWF so it's just it's really just cool to hear that perspective from Mick and he speaks so honestly about it while like you know the Herb episode's interesting because while there's tragedy mm-hmm. everyone across the board even all of these people are people who like, you know, never got their full payoffs and, you know, <laughs> uh, all this sort of like shade, they dealt with the shady side of him. Yeah. But every, every wrestler that they talked to for this, for this story across the board had like such an appreciation for Herb and like legit thought he was a, an innovator and a legend. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they liked him. It's not like they didn't. Yeah. He's a very likable guy. Like him. They liked him, and that that happens sometimes. I love people like that. Do you have a Do you have a favorite episode of the Confidential series of Dark Side of the Ring Confidential? Well, that I'll, it's so funny. I just told you that I of the of all the stories we did, the one I knew the least about was Herb. Mm-hmm. The Herb episode is our that's our last episode that will air, mm-hmm. um, and the basically 
the way our format works is we have a bunch of, you know, leading into every act, we have about a 30 to 45 second, um, you know, burst at the table. Then you see the act play out. And then we come back to the table for like an, a minute, minute and a half, two minutes of, of unpacking what you just watched, rinse and repeat. But twice during the hour and a half, we get you get a full act, which is about five, five, five minutes plus mm. of the straight talk. One in the middle of the episode, one one after the episode concludes. Um, in the Herb episode, the 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 act eight, the after the episode is over, we stay at the table. That whole act we use as sort of a, you know, um, for behind the scenes. Let's look at sort of how we how we made this, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we're looking at how we made those how those guys made the the recreations of like naked Herb Abrams running, you know, greased up with body oil and, and, and cocaine and, and all that stuff. And so, um, and also we do a whole package on uh, the cameos that are in the recreations, like Evan and Jason basically end up playing a bunch of the characters <laughs> in the, in the um, recreations. And, and so all of that to say, um, for all for like the really cool look at the BTS of the making of this amazing series that's going into season three uh, this summer, the end of the Herb Abrams episode is probably is my favorite chunk of of anything that we've made uh, that we made uh, um, across you know from start to finish. But obviously, we've talked about it ad nauseum. But Gino, Von Erics, and Brody for me are just like really special just because the surrealness and the, my personal in in being incredulous to the fact of like the fact that I got to talk about these stories in my professional life yeah, and got to put, put, um, and, you know, put more of this story out there. Um, and just like spend my days, like balancing, raising my crazy two year old and, you know, making him lunch, but also like taking calls about the scaffold match with the, with the midnight express and, you know, looking for the footage of seeing if we could clear the footage of Jim Cornette falling off the scaffold and breaking both of his, you know, and busting both of his legs. Um, you know, just like having those conversations during work hours, like just blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's so like long answer to an easy question. No, I love it. I love it. And every time I talk to Evan and Jason, I always end up leaving the conversation with this like feeling that I'm in the wrong field of work because I get so jealous that what they get to do is for each of these things, they get to kind of just completely engulf their life for a period of time Yeah. in whatever they're talking about. Like I just get so jealous that they just, they just get to become the Von Erics, like every, it's just their entire life for whatever amount of time they're going to be shooting this episode. Everything is Von Eric. And I would just, I would, I would love yeah. to have an excuse, a professional excuse to just rotate my life around something that specific and something that cool that I love so much. Yeah. Those do, those guys are the real deal. I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful to, to, to be a small part of, of the, the sort of uh, universe that they've created, but 
as you said, those guys live it, man. Mm-hmm. Those guys travel in an RV from city to city for whatever story that they're telling, and and they're they're spending time with these families that haven't talked about these tragedies um, in a, really in a number of years. They're bringing up really tough subjects to talk about. They're getting these people to like, you know, um, open up to them. They're really doing incredible, incredible uh, documentary work. And it just so happens that the work that they're doing is on these stories that are like tangential to uh, all, all these sort of um, these wrestling legends that, that we grew up like being fascinated with. So it, it's just a, a really insane Venn diagram of like all of my interests of like wrestling, the territories, the mag, you know, that whole world and then true crime, TV production uh all that stuff like merged into one for me it was it was just it was such a labor of love and a thrill and i'm psyched for people to to watch it and if you haven't watched you know it's tuesday tuesday nights at nine on on vice um and the episodes post to youtube and um all the episodes are posting to youtube eventually yeah that's awesome a a couple days after they air yeah they end up um because they have the dark side of the ring youtube channel so that's great they, they all end up there did you, I mean, as big a fan as you are, I know that I have suggested multiple topics oh, yeah. to Evan and, and Jason because that's just what you do, right? Like, I'm like, and, and it's because you realize, like, oh, if they take this in, like, all I want them to do is take the advice so that maybe I could see a cool documentary. Like, I, I've texted them multiple times going, like, guys, we got to do an Onita episode. Like, when is the Onita episode, please? And Onita. I would die for a Hayabusa episode. I mean, it might maybe you could combine them. I don't know. But have you? Did you? The whole season, dude. I, was, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I I was looking at my phone as you were talking because my last text to Evan was uh-huh. on Tuesday Tuesday at ten thirty in the morning. Uh-huh. I said, "Hey, I just got back from walking my dog." So I said, "Hey, listening to Jericho's chat with Shivani and Meltzer about Jim Crockett and there's a dark side of the ring in the story they tell about Starcade versus Survivor Series in 87 and how Vince sabotaged the NWA. They even call it the Starcade sabotage. That would be a great so one. I, all I do is send him texts like that about like, you got to do the Grams. You got to do like, <laughs> Graham and, and Eddie Graham. Yeah. And then I'll be like, a friend of mine saw that I posted about the show and a friend from high school, he's like, they got they got to do Ricky Dozan. He was killed by he was he, you know he was killed by the Japanese mafia, you know. And I, so um, yeah, that was one of the cool parts about becoming friends with Evan and Jason is I have a direct line to be like, what do you think of this? Like, dude, I read a I read a uh, uh, a uh, these these like pro rest. I forget they they end up in my Twitter feed, but they're these like sort of longer stories about fun things with wrestling but anyway it was the story of renegade oh bcw yeah of course and how basically like he got buried to the point of hit it leading to his depression and his ultimate death and i was like yo there's a story in renegade of like this guy who was like a rookie who is like meant to fill the shoes of ultimate warrior and obviously gets crapped on you know from from you know from the shoot yeah and uh, so I, I, I've sent the Renegade. I said the, the Grams. Um, they're doing. They're doing. Um, they're doing. Uh, what's his name from the Jersey Triad? Uh, I'm having a brain fart. The dude from New Jersey. Nick Gage. No. Uh, ba- uh, uh, who? Who better than Canyon? 
they're doing Canyon. Oh, Canyon Chris Canyon. One of the first names I said, I was like, you got to do Canyon. Yeah. Like, they were like, wink, wink. We're already doing it. So um, <laughs> I hope I'm not, I hope I'm not breaking news there because they'll kill me. But uh, I'm pretty sure that, that these, the, the third season names have been announced. Yeah, I think they have too. And I also feel like they've had a lot of trouble now that everybody's obsessed with it. They've had a lot of trouble keeping their, uh, keeping their topics uh, from, from leaking. Like, over the summer, David Arquette was on the Sirius XM show, and he's like, that's when he was like, yeah, and I just, you know, I just am doing an interview because they're doing a Dark Side of the Ring about Nick Gage, and I'm like, there's, <laughs> they haven't even announced they're doing a season three, David. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's why I just was like, oh, did I just step in it? But uh, No, that's announced. They said they're, uh, they're doing uh, Pillman... Uh, which is amazing. FMW. So there, I mean, I'm assuming the Onita yeah. story will be XPW, Nick Gage, Collision in Korea. That's going to be awesome. The Smith family, Grizzly and, and you know, Jake Roberts and all that. And Sam Houston. Yeah. Bruiser Bedlam, which is amazing. Chris Canyon and the Dynamite Kid. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a couple more that haven't been officially announced. But um, yeah. So you can see like they're evolving now too. So they're not just going to talk about an event or a person. They're going to talk about a whole organization. Yeah. I can't wait till this XPW episode. I mean, the XPW episode, anybody that was following, cause you know, I was a little, a little high school deathmatch fanatic. So like there's yeah, this is stuff like I don't even know about. So I'm excited to see the XPW and the FMW because yeah. Nick Gage, because I don't know, but that's like a part of wrestling that like, I don't, I don't dip my, I've never dipped my toe into. And so I'm excited to, to learn about those, those stories. And I know they're super excited to tell them. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, going to be, uh, it's going to be great, man. But I'm, I'm really excited that, uh, the dark side of the ring confidential is a thing just because I think I'm like most, fans where it's like there's just so much meat on the bone of all of this stuff conrad is obviously fantastic we didn't even talk about we didn't even talk about that the host of i mean conrad thompson uh you know he drove up from alabama again we were in the middle of a covid spike so, you can't so just... he didn't get on a plane he drove up from alabama spent two days with us in philadelphia you know we did four episodes a day the dude doesn't really have tv hosting experience and he just jumped in that chair he's excellent and- crushed it he's excellent i mean he was better without teleprompter at vamping and just looking at a page and looking up and and you know being being um fluid Mm -hmm. than a lot of seasoned hosts that i've worked with i mean i told him i I kept telling him i was just like man you have a career in this so he's he's like i'm busy enough as it is (laughs) but comrade's the man dude yeah He, he really uh so much effort put into uh helping us tell these stories and, and the trust that Evan and Jason had with Conrad to, to be at the table with him. That was super cool. And, and obviously just to spend time with that dude who has like every wrestler's phone number in his, in his phone. <laughs> and he's got stories on stories on stories. Uh, and I'm a huge flare mark. So yeah, to ask him some questions about his father-in-law. So it was just really cool and shout out to Conrad for that. But yeah, so Conrad's the host, Evan and Jason are at the table and like I said, we add 30 extra minutes to the hour-long episode. So you get the full episode, but you get hour chunks before and after every act. And and um, yeah, it's just all the lingering questions you have while watching a, a, a documentary. We're giving you the answers to those questions immediately. And it leaves me with confidence in the series, right? Like when the host is Conrad, like I know Conrad, he's a right. fan. 
Like you immediately have buy-in because you're like, oh yeah, he knows what he's talking. He knows what he's talking about. Evan and Jason, like I know that they are like they live and die by this. You're behind the scenes. I know you live and die by this. And it's like, yes, this is this is what this is supposed to be. We're going deep in the wrestling archive to tell these stories that we wrestling fans know are just great stories regardless of wrestling, but it does take somebody who has it in their blood, I think, to really tell the story right. And and I think that's happening and I'm I'm happy that it's happening more. So I hope that everybody's tuning in Tuesdays uh, at 9 p.m. on Vice uh, and you're checking it out. If you haven't seen any of them yet, go back and watch. I know the... Uh, the Gino Hernandez episode is is definitely up. And you get the whole Dark Side of the Ring episode, too, which is not bad. So that's up on YouTube. And I, I is the Montreal episode up on YouTube as well? I believe it is, yeah. Okay. Yeah, there was a both, funny both moment. There's a funny moment in that Montreal episode where Earl Hepner he does indeed confirm that he he's, to this day, it weighs on him so much and he's still so paranoid about all this that he was worried that... Jason and Evan were it was a it was a ruse it was a hoax and they were going to kill him for his he, role. He thought it was the setup to a hit. Like, yeah. That's how paranoid that like a mob hit, like a Canadian mob hit. He thought those dudes were coming down from Canada because he he was told Jason, you know, he's this director from Canada. He thought they were Canadian mobsters coming to kill him and he had called his friend on the police force to be like, "Hey, can you watch my back? I'm going to meet these guys at this hotel." Yada yada. Like we show that footage, which of course didn't make the episode, but like we have it in the can and we show it as a bonus clip of like his paranoia taking over. Like he lives it all these years later. So again, like all those cool little extras that you get um, is just icing on the cake of, of obviously the answers to the lingering questions and the BTS, the, the behind the scenes stuff and the making of the episode. But you also get these like really cool moments that they captured on camera, but like almost by accident. So cool. I, so I think I'm going to go right now and just, watch a whole bunch of episodes of dark side of the ring that tends to be what happens when i have these conversations but i uh i appreciate you man this was great i'll just say one last thing because of what you just said i I just special thanks special shout out to the wrestling community at large this sort of twitter community Mm -hmm. everybody has been so cool and so um supportive um once i kind of like put out there on social media that like I, I got to work on this show. Everybody's been so cool with congratulations and, and um, questions and and just like, you know, fist bumps and stuff like that. So um, I, I love this like nerdy uh, wrestling community that we all argue all day about stupid stuff. And we all like, you know, crap on each other's opinions. And some of us like AEW, some of us don't. Some of us like WWE, some of us don't. And we, you know, we get so passionate. But at the end of the day, like everyone's so supportive of everybody else. And uh, so big shout out to to all the wrestling fans. Thank you. And obviously, thank you, Sam. I appreciate the platform. Absolutely, man. Anytime. Thanks for listening. Follow at NotSam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Rate, review, and subscribe. This has been Not Sam Wrestling. Not Sam Wrestling.